the international headquarters of the Sword of the Lord Publishers and Ministries here in downtown Murfreesboro, Tennessee, in the heart of Tennessee, with Tennessee and the world at heart. This is Making a Difference, and I'm Dr. Shelton Smith, and I certainly welcome you today. We look forward to getting together here every day, five days a week, and I'm grateful that you've joined us today. Let me just remind you, our national Sword of the Lord conference is coming July 17 through 20. Get on the Sword of the Lord website at swordofthelord.com for full details. Well, listen, dear friends, today we're going to hear a message that I preached a few months back that I think will be a help and a blessing to you. I'm traveling, and I need some time here to accommodate my travel schedule some. Today and tomorrow, we're going to hear this message entitled, Preaching to the Choir. And I think it'll be a help to you because it is something we all need right along the way. So let's hear part one today of my message entitled, Preaching to the Choir. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse number 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and you see a lengthy list of names there, Joe and Bill and so forth. And Ezra, verse number five, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then there's another list of guys there, 13 of them, along with the Levites who caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, means the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be you sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Most of you know, I think, that Dr. John Rice founded the Sword of the Lord. 1934, this September will be 83 years ago. The time that he did that, he was pastor of the Fundamentalist Baptist Tabernacle in Dallas. He had started that church two years earlier in 1932. Church is now called Galilean Baptist Church. I was there just a few weeks ago and preached again. And um, 
At the time that Dr. John started that church and started the sword, he was already an evangelist and had been uh, regionally in Texas and maybe some of the surrounding areas had been making a good bit of noise. But that very quickly developed into him becoming a, what was then called, and we still refer to as a citywide evangelist. He was holding successful citywide crusades. 1940, he moved the sword to Wheaton, Illinois because his girls were college age and he thought there was a good college there. And so he, he moved to Wheaton for the girls to go to school and stayed there for the next 23 years. But early in the 1940s, after a very, very successful, large and successful citywide campaign, Dr. Rice came home and he gathered his group of workers at the sword around him and he told them, I just concluded the last citywide crusade. Do not intend to do any more. And by the way, he was only in his uh, 40s at that time. The workers were stunned. You say, how, how do you know all this? You weren't even alive then. No, but I had a worker at the sword who was alive then and was there from the get-go. She's in heaven now. Viola Walden worked with me the first 12 years I was at the sword, and Betty and I spent a lot of time with her, and I pulled a lot of information out of her about all the details of things. He told them that this was the last citywide crusade. They were a little bit stunned, and they said to him, they said, well, what, what's going on? He said, I've been aware for a while and have come to the conclusion that these citywide campaigns, the fruit does not remain. And so he said, I'm going to start something else, and we're going to call it Sword of the Lord Conferences, and the purpose of it is going to be to go after the pastors and the churches to get them to do all year long what we try to do in those crusades. That was the early 1940s. Now, the national Sword of the Lord conferences did not get underway until the mid-1970s. But for more than 40 years now, we've had a conference like this that we call the National Sword of the Lord Conference. And many of us, including this preacher, have been mightily impacted by these meetings long before I was an editor. I was here year after year, brought my wife here, brought my family here, brought folks from my church here and to the meetings other places. About a week and a half ago, I got a letter from a guy, and he was not a critic. He was a man just with some warm counsel, but he's, he was not critical. But he said to me, he said, why do you do those conferences like you do every year? And he made some reference to the financial expenditure. And he said, he said uh, here, here was his point. He said, you're just preaching to the choir. And I wrote him back a letter. And I said to him, I said, my brother, you are exactly right. We are preaching to the choir. We're preaching to the choir. And the reason that we're preaching to the choir is the choir needs it. The choir in your church is probably made up of some of the most faithful people in your church. They may be some of the best workers in your church. I've noticed that some of the choir members also run bus routes. And some of the choir members also show up for soul winning and other things. I mean, you have a work day or whatever. I mean, your choir members are very well some of the most faithful and hardest working people in your church. 
But I back up to say that the choir needs the preaching and other things that we do in this conference and other such things. And the reason is I've heard a lot of choirs. And some of the folks in these choirs get off key. Some of them come to sing on Sunday, but they weren't at rehearsal. And then we show up to sing on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and sometimes some of the seats are empty because some of the folks who are in the choir don't show up for choir. Now all of that just says to me, I mean aside from the fact that some of them hadn't figured out whether they're a soprano or an alto or whether they're a tenor or a bass, but I resubmit to you the fact that the choir, they need to be in place, they need to be at their own time, and by the way, it does matter who's leading the choir. You got a choice between me leading it and Dr. Sterling Walsh leading it, my suggestion is you go with Brother Walsh. It does matter who plays the piano. You got a choice between me and David Chamberlain, I guarantee you, go with Brother David. It does matter. Now, as I pondered this letter that I got saying, you're preaching to the choir, I thought of some things, like the passage that I've just read. This is what I call the Watergate Revival. They'd built a wall, they'd gotten it finished. By the way, there'd been a lot of good things happened during the building of that wall. But it appears that some things had also gone missing. Some of the things that they were supposed to have been doing while they were down in captivity had gotten left undone and so much so that the passage says here when they built the booths and started doing what they were supposed to do with those, they said it hadn't been done in a long time. And there are probably things that your church maybe who, that have gone missing a little bit. I mean, uh, uh, at this point in time, you might want to check and see. And so they met at the water gate. The old city of Jerusalem's got those various gates. The water gate was the place where they brought the water in into the temple area. They would bring fresh water in for the use in the temple and drinking, whatever else. They came in, this passage says, that the people gathered in and of themselves and Ezra brought the law out and began to read the law and he stood up on a pulpit of wood. And it was evidently a big one because 13 others of these guys got up there to help him. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all of the people and caused them to understand the law. Seems like that in a lot of our churches, the pulpit has become a place for everything but the right thing. I preached yesterday morning over at Calvary Baptist in Statesville. And in the opening part of the service, Brother Haslip, the pastor said, he said to the congregation, he said, folks, he said, let's enjoy church. When I got up, I, I referenced that and I said, you know, I think we're doing that already. But I said, they're not doing that in a lot of places across town. And a lot of, the reason why a lot of places they're not enjoying church because they're not having church. They're having stuff, but it don't look like church. But he caused the people to understand the law. And my job and your job is not to be an entertainer and to compete with some dude from Hollywood, but to cause the people to understand what is in the book. Verse eight says, so they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused the understanding. 
And Nehemiah, who was the governor at that point, he said, this day is holy unto the Lord, mark it down. Now, so this is the Watergate revival. As I pondered this matter of why we preach to the choir, I thought about Psalm 85, the passage that's been preached on in this conference any number of times from this pulpit. And you'll remember the passage where the question is raised, will thou be angry with us forever? The us in there, who's that? That's the choir. Will thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Will thou not revive us? Who's that? That's the choir. Will thou not revive us again that thy people, thy people, who's that? That's the choir. That thy people may rejoice in thee. Prayer lifted up to God and said, oh God, are you going to frown upon us? Are you going to show your anger upon us forever? Or will you instead cause the, the renewing and cause the reviving and the stirring and, and the motivating rightly of your people so that they may rejoice again in thee? In my memory, I also reflected upon the Mount Carmel revival. 1 Kings 18. The Bible says in that passage it was a time of famine. There had been no rain for three years. The country had dried up. Early part of that chapter tells that Jezebel had found some of the prophets of God and had killed them. Elijah, knowing that, was nonetheless unintimidated. I said unintimidated by the wicked rulers. He was the man of God. He was the prophet of God. Verse 15 in that passage simply says, Elijah said... Well, we'll need to interrupt the message right there, but tomorrow we'll hear the remaining part of that entitled, Preaching to the Choir. I hope this has been a help to you. And dear friends, I'd love to hear from you. So write to me, Dr. Shelton Smith, at P.O. Box 1099, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, 37133, the email address is radio at swordofthelord.com. Well, until tomorrow, God bless you. Have a good rest of this day, and goodbye for now.